This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. So welcome back, my friends, to the Worth Recovery Podcast. We're so grateful that you're here, and I'm so grateful to have with me today uh, Erica Garza, who's uh, written a book about her story through sexual addiction and recovery, Um, and the title of the book is Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Hi, Erica. Hi, Amy. So glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was introduced to Erica's book uh, just actually maybe two or three months ago by Stacy Sprout, who we had on the podcast before. Uh, Stacy's a good friend of mine and uh, kind of introduced me to the work that Erica was doing in her book. And because of my passion to kind of read and share women's stories through sex addiction, I instantly got it and read it and was so excited about just having another voice, another woman to add to this discussion. So I wanted to start, Erica, by just asking you what, you know, why did you want to write the book? What made, what prompted you to do that? You know, I've always turned to writing as a source of comfort. So, I mean, my initial reasons for, for, for sitting down and, and starting to get into this work was just to figure out how I had gotten to this point and to sort of make peace with the past and, and get some clarity there. And then I started to publish little pieces online And the first one that I did was back in 2014. I just did this personal essay for a website called Salam. And the response I got for that was just overwhelming and life-changing. It was from men and women thanking me for telling, telling my story. And, you know, they'd, they'd felt so alone for a long time about a lot of the things I was talking about and felt like they were the only ones going through this. And just hearing from another person who had been there was a comfort for them. And actually hearing from them was a comfort for me as well, because I, you know, so much of this addiction is, is about isolation and, and feeling like you're more bro- broken than anybody else and, and quite ashamed. And having that connection there with another person who's been there, I think was really helpful and healing. So then I just started thinking, okay, this is something I need to be writing about on a bigger level because I wanted to reach as many people as I could and to put my story out there and show other people that they weren't alone. So I felt like it was an important contribution to make, which is when I started to write the book. Yeah, that's great. I, that validation piece of um, just that you're not alone, that there are other people out there feeling the same way, experiencing some of the same things, having that um, addiction piece in their life has also been a huge healing part of my journey and my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I, every time I read someone's story or I hear someone's story, I just feel like another little piece of me kind of falls into place and heals as I get that validation. Um, it sounds, and I felt that way reading your story and your book as well. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I loved so many different pieces in reading, but I kind of wanted to start with the end. There's this paragraph or a couple paragraphs you write at the end of your book um, in the very last chapter uh, where it says, so this is just kind of the opening paragraph. um, Here's what I've learned about trauma. 
Trauma can be ordinary. And when you have a chronic fear of ordinariness, you can convince yourself that your trauma actually isn't trauma at all. You'll listen instead to that loud voice inside your head saying, oh, you big crybaby, stop making a big deal out of nothing. Some people have real problems. Uh, I, I just wanted to start with that because so many of the women that I talk to and so many people, men and women that I talk to about sex addiction, have a hard time justifying or saying that their trauma was bad enough or it was so bad that it you know justified or caused or contributed to their addiction or to their lives or to the issues that they were having. And I love this piece that you write about how trauma is ordinary. Can you tell us a little bit about where that came from for you? I think we're led to believe that in order to become an addict, we have to have experienced this major trauma in our lives, especially when it comes to sex addiction and especially when it comes to women. There's this common story that we tell where, you know, something terrible must have happened to her. She must have been abused. She must have been raped or molested, you know, all of these, these big terrible stories. And while that is true in many cases, it's not true in every case. And for me, it took me a long time to get to a point to realize that I needed to get help because I just thought, you know, nothing bad happened to me. I, I was raised in a healthy, happy, you know, family. I had two parents. Um, I, I always felt safe. It was a good neighborhood, you know, nothing awful happened. Yes, I had some troubles, you know, with fitting in and, you know, I was, I had scoliosis when I was 12. So I felt very different from everyone. So there were things that happened to me, but they just didn't fit that story of major trauma or what I thought trauma was supposed to look like. And it really led me to feel just more ashamed about what I was doing because I couldn't point to any kind of reason like that to justify my pain. Um, so it was really important for me to show that, you know, you can become an addict um, under any circumstances and that everybody's pain is valid and worth being listened to. And, and, you know, it's okay to ask for help and to ask for support, whether you think your trauma, you know, is, is important to somebody else or looks big to somebody else. It doesn't matter. It matters how you feel. And I really wanted to make, make space for that, that conversation and those possibilities because they are quite common. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that they, like you said, they a lot of times prohibit us from getting the help that we need, or maybe just, cause us to not think that we need the help that, you know, that is available for us. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that, that addition to the conversation that we don't have to have these major traumas in order to, to have an addiction and also to stop labeling that, to stop making those assumptions that if someone does have um, an addiction or s struggling with something like that, that there can be, um, that this doesn't necessarily mean that that is part of their story. Yeah. And then because if your story doesn't fit that big narrative, then you're more likely to just shut down, keep quiet about it, keep doing the things that you're doing and not reaching out for help. So it's really hoping to open that up a little more. Yeah, absolutely. So your book was published in 2017, right? Just last year. And tell us a little bit about the Sorry. response. All right. Just to correct you, it was actually oh, published this year in, in January. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, yeah. Um, what has been your response? It's been, so it's been very recent if it's March. Yeah, only a couple 
couple of months, you know, the response has been really positive, way more positive than I expected it to be. I was kind of hardening myself, preparing myself for the trolls and, you know, my family to freak out and lots of uncomfortable conversations. But, you know, it's mostly been positive and that hasn't happened yet. So I feel really grateful, um, especially when it comes to my parents. You know, my parents have been the ones I was worried most about um, because I didn't want them to feel like I was blaming them or that they'd done something wrong or, you know, anything like that. I wanted them to, to know that I felt supported by them and loved by them. And this wasn't so much about them. Um, and, and, you know, I think they understood that writing this book was part of my healing process and they respected that, you know, what, what parent wouldn't want their child to heal the best way they know how. So I've been very lucky so far. Hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and in reading, I, I had the same impression. Like I didn't feel like you were blaming your parents at all. I've read a lot and heard a lot of different stories. And I think people struggle with that piece of, you know, how, where to, I think people want to put blame and kind of, um, look at things in maybe a binary aspect of good or bad, or, you know, it was their fault or those types of things. And I very much in reading your narrative loved that, um, you accepted and loved your parents and also allowed them to be human and who they were. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of blame at all. I oh, love reading it. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, it's always a strange thing when you're writing a memoir. It's like you have to be extra conscious of if you're treating other people fairly and not just my parents, but also, you know, some of the people I had relationships with in the book, it was really important for me to be fair. And a lot of times I had blamed people in my past. Um, and writing the book was a process of being more compassionate towards them and mm -hmm. taking on some responsibility for those actions as well. I would say that was probably the hardest part of writing the book was facing those truths about myself and, and taking the responsibility for, um, you know, taking action in those places and doing things that were destructive to myself. And it wasn't so much about uh, blaming those people anymore. That was difficult, but necessary for me to heal completely. Yeah, that kind of responsible ownership piece that says, this is what I did, and this is my contributions to that, and other people contributed as well, but I'm going to take responsibility for those pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you allude several times in your book about this idea that you know there, wa there wasn't research or discussion or information about women in sex addiction for you throughout this kind of journey that you went to. I, I have this one um, highlight here where you said, you know, ha had there been more research and discussion about sexual addiction to women, would I have changed my behavior earlier? You know, if there had been examples of vulnerable, open, honest women sharing their journeys, would I have been willing, more willing to embrace the possibility that I wasn't alone? Mm -hmm. um, so as you go, mm -hmm. as you started this whole sex addiction journey, as you know, you were kind of called out on that, as people brought that to your attention, were you, did you experience any kind of support from women? What was, what was kind of, what did you find as you did some, your first initial kind of recovery work? I would say the most helpful thing for me was going to meetings and meeting other men and women who were going through this because 
I don't think that anything fuels addiction more than silence. And so having that sense of community around this and being able to share things with other people who understand um, has been incredible and, and really helpful for my journey. And, you know, in my early stages, when I first went to those meetings, they were mostly men, you know, and that's what I expected. And that's how it turned out. But there were women there. And it was helpful either way, hearing from men and from women. Um, but what was really helpful after a while was when I started writing about this, and hearing from men and women and women were more likely to reach out for me, reach out to me, sorry, on computer online, because it's a bit more anonymous. I feel like people are feel safer behind the computer screen. And that was great as well. Um, so I often wonder, I ask that question, you know, what would have happened long ago if I had somebody to turn to other stories about this to make me feel less alone, because I do think that it would have helped. And I also think that if, I had heard of other women just speaking about sex openly and masturbation. You know, when I was a teenager discovering masturbation, I have the same question there. Would it have changed? Would my journey have changed? Would it look different if I had heard about other girls masturbating, you know, and that wouldn't have seemed like such a horrible thing that I was doing. and I was the only person going through this. So I think it helps to have that sense of community. And again, that was one of the reasons in writing this book was to put my story out there to hopefully, um, hopefully help other people feel that they're not alone, especially other women. Yeah. I, I love that comment because I think that it's so true. We don't, we need women not just talking about sex addiction, but just talking about healthy sexuality in general. What does that look like for women? How do we step into healthy sexuality? How do we own that piece of our lives and not have that conversation be so dominated by, by men and by the pornography industry and, and by um, others that are, you know, trying to silence the women's voice in healthy sexuality? Yeah. Because when I first started masturbating, when I was first starting to discover these things and watched porn for the first time, I mean, nobody in my family ever talked about sex. I was raised in a Latino Catholic household. I mean, sex was just something not discussed. And even in school, the way sex was discussed was with a lot of discomfort and shame around it. It was something that happened between two married people for procreation. That's it. There was no talk of the pleasure. There was no talk of masturbation, anything like that. And um, it just seemed like something bad and sinful. And so when I made those discoveries tied up in all of that pleasure was a huge sense of shame and guilt and dread. And I just didn't know how to separate those two feelings from each other. So that going forward, I continue to seek out that combination of shame and pleasure, not knowing that that's a really destructive way to look at your sexuality. And, you know, in it, leaked into everything, the way I felt about myself, the kinds of relationships I put myself into, the experiences I saw, they always had to have that combination of shame and pleasure, and it just didn't serve me. And so I think that if I could go back in time and, and know, you know, that it was okay to have pleasure, and what I was doing was okay and normal, and I, w I was worthy of, of pleasure, then my path would look quite different, you know? And I think those conversations need to be had with, with young girls, um, shame-free and judgment-free, so that they can embrace their sexuality instead of look at it as something to be afraid of and ashamed of. Yeah, when you have those experiences early on, like that wire those two things together, shame and pleasure, then as an adult, you have to unwire that, which takes some effort, <laughs> a lot of effort and work. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and really learn to, 
you know, embrace that pleasure piece without the shame. That that's so difficult for a lot of women. I mean, and men too, I'm sure, but a lot of women in recovery, unwiring those two things can be so hard. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, for sure. So let's, um, so I don't want, I don't, you know, we can tell, we could probably just tell your whole story, but then we also want people to read your book. So, um, but I would like you to, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us a brief, quick, um, overview of your recovery journey. Like when did you first decide I, I'm, I need to make some major changes and kind of what prompted that for you in your life? Okay. So a lot of people ask me, you know, what was the bottom? What was like the lowest point? And it's really difficult for me to pinpoint one like awful moment where I decided, okay, things need to change. For me, it was a gradual realization mm-hmm. of I'm unhappy and stuck and I have a, I'm having issues with sex. I'm having issues with relationships. What can I do to change? Um, and it was in my twenties where I had just been sabotaging relationship after relationship because anytime that I felt like I was caring about another person or, you know, this might be love, they might love, they might care about me. That was all too scary and risky. It was much easier to just sleep with a person and have this this no strings attached, light, casual thing um, because I didn't have to risk too much of myself. And when it ended, no big deal because I didn't care. And that's a really lonely way to live. And I just wanted to know what love and intimacy and connection with other people felt like because I was tired of feeling so alone and isolated and spending most of my time um, just binging on porn, you know, when I wasn't having sex with somebody or thinking about who I was going to have sex with next and just my life being about that. Um, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be about much more than that. And I had sabotaged a relationship that I particularly valued and really felt like it could be something, um, because I just didn't feel worthy of it. And I was very aware of it at the time when I was, when I was ending that relationship, that it was something that I didn't want to do, but I didn't know how to do something else other than that. Um, and so my 30th birthday was, was coming up around then. And I thought to myself, you know, that decade has to be better than the last one, or I'm going to keep going down this path and I deserve more than that. And I had read Eat, Pray, Love. And I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but it was a big <laughs> book at the time. <laughs> and I thought, I want to have a journey like that. And I had also heard from people that Bali was really um, cheap. And so I thought, okay, I can, I can go there and, and explore it and not break the bank. And so I took this trip to Bali with this intention of just taking care of myself and doing things differently. And so I started doing a lot of yoga and meditation and just paying attention to what was happening in my head and the kinds of things I was telling myself. And it wasn't very nice. And um, it was when I was in this clear headed space when I met the man who became my husband and he was also on his own path. He was in recovery for drug addiction and we were kind of in the same space of wanting to do things differently and just lead better lives. And I felt comfortable enough with him where I was able to reveal that I was a sex addict or that I thought I might be a sex addict. And, you know, he didn't run away. I felt completely supported and listened to. And that was always my big fear was if I reveal this thing to somebody, if somebody knows that these are the kind of things I do, then they're going to run away. And he didn't. And it felt like such a relief to just 
be real with another person and allow myself to be vulnerable and say what was on my mind and show who I really was. And I thought, okay, this feels too good to be this real and honest. So I'm just going to yeah. keep going down this path and revealing as much of myself as possible. And that's when I really started going to 12 step meetings, which was also an opportunity to reveal parts of myself to other people and listen to them. I started to, um, I started to do talk therapy. I did something called the Hoffman process, which is like, they call it like a, a lifetime of psychotherapy condensed to one week. It's incredibly intense, but it's all about tracing your negative patterns back to childhood and learning how to instill new habits. And I started to do Muay Thai kickboxing and more yoga and meditating more and writing about my journey. And it was really important for me to show in this book that there are so many different things you can do beyond 12 step meetings. You know, if that's not your thing, I think it's a great place to start. And I always tell people to start with 12 step meetings because it's nice for that community. But there are so many other things that you can do to start doing new things, you know, and like instilling right. new habits in your life uh, with your body, with your mind whatever, to step outside of that addiction and do things that are differently. It was really important for me to show that in my book that I tried a lot of new things in order to find a thing that works. And what I ended up finding was that the combination of all those things and the good intention for change was what helped me in the end. Um, and so, you know, it's an ongoing process and I'm, I'm still in the process and I don't think that it ever ends with something like sex addiction because unlike, you know, drug addiction or alcohol addiction, you don't give it up completely. It's not about abstinence. It's about finding that balance. And I do feel like I've come to that place where I feel like I'm in a much healthier and, and happier place than I wasn't before. Yeah. Thanks. I, I agree so much. I love the idea that, you know, 12 steps has been important to me as well. And there are so many other aspects and so many other things about my life that had to change that I had to change so many patterns and behaviors and find that balance that worked. And then because we can't give up relationships, I mean, sex is all about relationships and power. And because we can't give up relationships, it's always going to be an ongoing process, um, right? I want it to be an ongoing process because I always want my relationships to get better and mm -hmm. to have better, better connection with people in my life. Um, so I, I've really felt that in your book too, that you tried so many different things and was able to find something that, that has worked for you. Yeah. I think what happens sometimes that people go to 12 step meetings and they don't like something about it, you know, like they don't want to do the steps or they don't want to believe in a higher power, whatever it may be. And then they don't know where else to go for help. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, I don't want that to be the only solution there is. And then there's also the thing that you see where become sexual anorexia, you know, you cut yourself off from intimacy and sex, sexual pleasure altogether. And I don't think that's healthy either. So, I mean, it's all about finding that middle place and, and figuring out what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. That whole, it's just two sides of the same coin, right? Like sexual anorexia, sexual addiction, you're still not engaging in healthy relationships in a way that can be meaningful and provide connection for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned and kind of telling us, thanks for sharing that like beginning of your recovery journey. You, you were able to connect with this man that eventually has become your husband. And how has that been? So many people, um, worry. I know like they get into recovery and how am I going to, you know, be honest with a, with a spouse or with a significant other or partner about what's going on and things like that. And how has that been for you to be fully honest with someone that you're in a relationship with? 
You know, it was scary at the beginning, of course, you know, of course, because I hadn't ever been that honest with anybody else ever. So, I mean, that was a big hurdle to jump over and there were stumbles along the way. And, you know, it was a rough beginning. It wasn't all perfect. And, and I didn't ever really take a, a big break from relationships because, I mean, I was newly in recovery and figuring this out and I was in a new relationship as well. Um, so this, he has been a huge part of the healing process. And I think it's just his ability to listen. He's a great listener and he's incredibly supportive and non-judgmental. And um, I've just been really grateful that he's been able to support me no matter what. And especially in, in writing this book, because it can't be easy to, to hear about your partner's <laughs> you know, um, past mistakes and, and past relationships in such explicit detail. Um, but he has never made me feel like I'm doing something that he's ashamed of and he's been incredibly supportive. So I don't think I would have um, been brave enough to write this as quickly as I did. It probably would have been a longer process if I hadn't had him supporting me along the way. So I'm, I'm very happy for that. Yeah, that's great. And I'm happy that you're happy in a relationship. I, I find that so many um, sex addicts, that's a question that they have in their mind as they go through this recovery journey is, will I ever find a relationship? Will I ever be able to find that balance and, and be happy? And I love that about the ending of your book, which just that we made this work and we're making it work and it's, it's working for both of us and it's a lot of fulfillment and joy. So yeah. congratulations on that. I love that. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Um, yeah. One of the things, and I also know that you're a relatively new parent. Is that correct? I am. Yes. Yeah. Two. She's reaching the terrible twos. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Um, I, I loved, one of the things I really loved about your book was um, also the like links and research that you used um, and, and cited. And one of the things that really spoke to me was this whole piece about women, about moms being the single most, you know, influential um, voice about their daughter's body image. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of cite this research by Dr. Mm -hmm. Leslie Sim from the Mayo Clinic about eating disorders. And, and one of the things he said, um, even if a mom says to the daughter, you look so beautiful, but I'm so fat, it can be detrimental, right? And that research has shown that the less emphasis a mother puts on outward appearance, either criticizing or complimenting herself, her daughter and others, the more likely her daughter will have high self-esteem. Mm -hmm. I know like that was part of my journey, my personal journey. That was kind of my experience with my mother. And I also know so many women who are in recovery and trying to do things better with their children. Um, and so, you know, as you have a daughter now, uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe kind of your plans to talk about some of the body image issues or how you, how you um, could counsel or help other women who are struggling with what to do with their children and their daughters about body image and about sex addiction. I mean, the best I can intend to do is to be open and honest and allow myself to be vulnerable with my daughter. Um, I want to be a safe space for her to come to when she has questions about sex and about porn and masturbation. I want to be 
a safe person that she can come to and ask these questions and speak about these things because there will be so many other parts of her life that will try to shame her about these things. I mean, hopefully we're moving in the right direction and people will become more open to talk sex. Um, but you know, the way that I grew up, it, it, it scares me to think of like that kind of silence um, and shame surrounding her own journey. So I'm really hoping to be that voice of shame-free um, acceptance and, and, and love. And um, hopefully she can come to me and ask these questions and feel like I have an open door, you know, and, and it's okay to come to me. Um, and as far as body image, I mean, yeah, that was a big one for me because I remember my mom just never feeling comfortable in her body and always saying negative things about her body. And yes, she would compliment me and say things like, oh, you're so thin, or I wish I was so pretty like you, and th those sorts of things, which were meant to build me up. But it wasn't as effective as she wanted it to be because I was still looking at the way she was viewing herself and thinking, okay, well then I've got to stay thin. And I've, I never had an eating disorder or anything, but it certainly was on my mind was like, it's important to stay thin. It's important to be pretty and to be beautiful. Um, if I, if I'm not this way, then she won't say those things and the world won't say these things to me. So it became very important um, to, to place my value in those external things, external qualities. So yes, I, I'm not going, I'm going to do my best to not speak <laughs> about um, body image, you know, but it's like, yeah. it's hard because you, you say that I'm not in those situations yet. So I don't know, uh, I could only hope for the best and, and intend to be open and, and self-loving and not say anything bad about my own body. And, you know, I mean, that's the best we can do. And to know that we will make mistakes and stumble along the way, but to always bring it back to love. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the best I can do. Yeah. You talk a lot about the, um, in your, in your book about the, the grooming behaviors that happen and um, the hours that you took to prepare yourself and the obsessions that you had about things like body hair, or um, I'm thinking about the experience you had with the other women, um, other girls, I guess, you know, at lunch. And one of them was like, oh, I forgot to shave my arms today. And, you know, those like, just those conversations that happened. And it brought back so many memories for me of being in high school and those like hours and hours of grooming that girls do or are conditioned. I don't know how to explain that, but they do to, you know, to live up to these ideals that we feel are placed upon us. How much do you think that that really impacted your sex addiction journey? How much do you think that was a part of that for you? You know, I feel like watching porn and removing hair, they, those were really similar activities for me. They were things that I did in private. They were things that I did that make me, they made me feel ashamed. Um, and it, it also was something that I couldn't really stop doing it's like I would pluck I would sit there and pluck for hours at my bikini area um instead of going to get waxed it's like <laughs> a much longer process, much longer and tedious process but it took me out of my head and uh, it was something that I just did privately and it was like this goal I was trying to attain you know it, it was a long process to get there but then I 
got there and it was like this rush of, of pleasure from like accomplishing that goal, almost like having a, you know, sexual release, having an orgasm. So, so weird, those activities. But then wow. it's like the hair grew back and it's like, okay, I've had the orgasm and now I've got to look for something new to watch and have another one. You know, it's like this endless habit of trying to attain something and then attaining it and, and going back and doing it again. Um, so I do find a lot of similarities between those two activities. And I think it, a lot of it also was about that escape aspect and like just being out of my head for a moment um, and getting away because if you're out of your head, then you don't have to think about all the other scary things in your life or, you know, feel those emotions that you're trying to run away from. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was interesting for me to write about those pieces and notice how many similarities there were. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that escapism, I think is definitely a big piece of addiction in general, whatever your addiction is, that idea of escaping from, from your life. And it's amazing to me how, I mean, I can turn almost any behavior into that (laughs) um, if I'm not careful, right? If I'm not, I mean, I can turn anything into escape behavior if I'm not living more mindfully and not being careful about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've noticed um, social media, you know, has yeah. been a big one for me. It's like, okay, I'm not scrolling through porn clips anymore, but I'm scrolling through like my Instagram feed and <laughs> it gives me a, the same sort of like weird escapist rush of like new material to new stimuli to look at. It's, it's really weird. I think that that's something I need to keep away from soon. <laughs> <laughs> I totally relate to that. I gave that, I gave social media up for a while. I'm back on, not a problem, but I, yeah, like got to keep that in check, make sure that I'm not using that as an escape or in, I love what you said, just that whole idea of like new material, ding, 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 right? Like, let's look, let's, yeah, let's (laughs) let's watch. So um, one other aspect, excuse me, one other aspect I'd like to kind of hit on is this whole idea of, of pornography being the, I mean, a massive part of your story. Um, I, there are a lot of women I talk with and that listen that, you know, pornography is not a big piece of their story. And then there are women that I talk to that pornography is the major piece, or maybe even the only big piece of their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so women, I think have this whole, I don't know, it's this weird thing with pornography because it's watching most of the time it's watching other women. And so it can be very weird and confusing for women. So talk a little bit, if you would, about kind of pornography for you, what that was, how it kind of started and, and initiated things for you. So I started watching when I was 12, um, just softcore porn on, on cable TV when my parents were asleep. And, um, you know, it was really interesting enticing and exciting. Mm -hmm. But not long after that, uh, the internet started to come around. Probably when I was 13, I think AOL or maybe, yeah, I think it was AOL came around and I started having chat room encounters. um, And then downloading pictures became available. And then streaming porn clips were available and GIFs. uh, And then long, you know, and then streaming sites were available so I could watch longer videos. And I feel like at any point that I may have gotten over it or like lost interest, 
there was something new and more enticing and more accessible and faster speeds um, to keep me engaged. And so it was really hard to turn away from um, because it was like, yeah, I used to be able to use it in my, in the living room where we had one computer, but then I had a laptop and then I had a mobile device. So it just became harder to peel myself away. And I used it as a crutch um, just like I was talking about the hair removal um, was just to like eat up time and like do something secretive and get out of my head and feel good and also feel kind of bad because like I said, I had that shame that was part of the pleasure. And so I would often watch clips that would make me feel bad or like feel shocked or disgusted. It's almost like I needed to be turned off in order to be turned on. Mm -hmm. And so I started watching progressively harder clips and things that um, I wasn't sure I really liked, but I, I got a response, like physical response, response anyway. So like things like women being walked around on leashes, um, like violent scenes, rough sex, um, just lots of things that made me feel uncomfortable on um, like the more depressed the woman looked, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I think that a lot of that had, to do with it being a mirror for for maybe how I felt about myself um, as somebody who was you know something to be ashamed of or some someone to be pitied or like someone who isn't worth very much um, I kind of was tied to that story of it which is really interesting um, I've talked to my husband about this and he's just like oh I just like watching it like when they look hot and like just like very normal mild stuff that didn't turn me on you know and it was like I needed to have the story that was part of it um, which was really interesting. And I think it's, it's something that a lot of women watch and, and maybe uh, Pornhub actually released data not that long ago, late last year that said that women are 113% more likely to watch hardcore porn with scenes like violent sex and rough sex degradation than men are. Um, and, you know, and that goes against what people think women want to watch, you know, porn for women, which I think is real soft scenes and, um, you know, women being treated well and respected. And I'm curious, you know, and I, I wish that more women would talk about these things because I think there's a lot at play there psychologically about why we want to watch these scenes and why we may go after them compulsively. Um, but I don't know the answer to that. You know, all I know is that I was watching these things and feeling like I was the only one going through this and it would be such a service to women if other women talked about it and, and you know, we started having a conversation about why and, and what we're getting out of it and just yeah. feeling alone and well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's shocking to me. 113% more likely to watch more violent um, pornography. And, and the idea that, um, that porn is for women can a lot of times, I think, I agree with you, be a mirror for how we're feeling about ourselves and for how we're feeling about, you know, engaging in this activity. And so we watch those scenes maybe sometimes that are more graphic um, because that's how we're feeling about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we, um, let's continue to have this conversation on how we get women to talk about what they are watching and why they're watching and what's going on. Because I think that that could be a lot of great data and information to help women in these circumstances. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and you know, I think that, I th I'm hopeful because I think that we're experiencing a, a cultural shift where women are speaking about 
things that they've previously felt ashamed about. Um, and, and I'm hoping that we're moving in the right direction and more women will come forward because yes, that's the only way that we're going to break taboos and, and, and break misconceptions that we have about sex addiction and, and women in porn and, and women's sexuality in general. Um, I think it's just, there's so many inaccurate ideas about how that looks or what it should look like. And, you know, and the more we talk about it, the more that we'll understand each other and women will feel like, you know, they can talk about these things. They're not the only ones going through this. Right. And that we can unwire those like, um, shame and pleasure pieces for women so that we can have more healthy sexual conversations and we can own that piece of our lives and our beings a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, you know, we, uh, worth recovery here. We talk to women throughout the world. So excited about that, about sex addiction, about sex addiction recovery. We share a lot of women's stories and our own journeys and things like that. So I wanted to give you kind of, as we start to wrap up here a few minutes, or if there's anything you would like to say to these hundreds and women throughout the world that are either struggling with sex addiction or in the recovery process, trying to figure things out for themselves, what would kind of your message be to these women? I mean, the first and foremost is you are not alone. And I know you may feel like you're the only one who who is experiencing this, but you are not. There are many of us out there. And a really helpful thing to do is to reach out to somebody for help if you feel like you need help and to do that in the safest way possible. Um, If you can't reach out to somebody that you know personally, um, there are support groups. And I often tell people, you know, about, you know, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous is a great place to start. And if you don't have a meeting like that in your area, then you can certainly find one online. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And to just start talking about these things. And I think that it's okay. It's okay to reveal these things and expose these things about yourself. And you may feel like you'll be turned away, but you will be offered support and understanding. Yeah. Thank you. I know um, the 12 step communities are, were my first source of support and help. Um, And I've been able to find others, but they've been so important to me. And I, online meetings are awesome. Phone meetings are awesome. All those different types of things. So Erica, thanks again for being willing to be here, for sharing your story. Um, Where can people find your book? Um, It's available at uh, most bookstores, Barnes and Noble. Uh, Amazon is a good place to get it. Otherwise you can come to my website, ericagarza.com. Okay. Perfect. Thanks again so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Erica and her willingness to be on our podcast and to share her story with us and also with the world. I just wanted to give really quickly before we close, I wanted to give a quick caution. Um, While I totally enjoyed the book and I 100% believe that everybody reading another woman's story and being with another woman and hearing another woman's story helps me heal. There were pieces of my life and pieces of my story that I was able to piece together better and things that fell into place through reading her book. And with that, I know that early on in recovery, um, ladies and gentlemen, both of you, that reading things uh, about addiction, sometimes even just reading recovery literature can be super triggering. 
And because of Erica's desire to be really transparent and put her whole story out there, there are pieces of her story that are very descriptive. And like I said, while I healed, I definitely healed from reading that. If you are new in recovery or you're struggling with your sobriety right now, I just wanted to put that out there, that there are very descriptive passages in Erica's book that describe her behavior. And so just take that into account before you decide to jump in and read it. Um, There were pieces about my story and my parents and pornography use and a few other things that really, really impacted me and were really helpful for me in reading that book. And I want you to be able to share and spread and um, share in someone else's story and spread the word about women and sex addiction and your recovery needs to come first. So just think about that before you go ahead and, and read the book. Thanks again, Erica, for being with us, for spending time with us, and for being so brave to share your story with the world. The more that we talk about this issue with women and sex addiction in general, the more we can do to heal each other and to help each other. So with that, I just want you to remember, ladies, that you are 100% worth recovery. 100%, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on right now, no matter how far down you think you've gone, no matter what shame you're feeling, no matter what's happening right now, you are worth recovery. And you're worth recovery because you just exist. And existing makes you valuable. And I'm so grateful for that. So if you don't believe me, you can just, if you don't believe that, that you're worth recovery, you can just trust me until you get there because I know that you'll get there eventually. I want you to know that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.